So if you were to, you know, have a place and start, you know, renting it out on Airbnb and you start making some money and say, oh man, I'm making, you know, I'm making some income. You start thinking about the potential that you could have. Hey friends, welcome back to the Black Diamond Podcast. This is your host, Eric Malzone. And this is the show where I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing entrepreneurs, founders, change makers, and people who are just creatively leading the way through innovation. And it's not only about successes and, and great stories, because you'll definitely get those, but it's also about the personal challenges and the vulnerability that we face along the way. So this show is brought to you by Level 5 Mentors, helping entrepreneurs and founders achieve the highest levels of freedom in five different categories, time, money, relationships, health, and purpose. And if you want to find out how you're doing in those five categories, we got you covered. We got a survey for that. Just go to level5mentors.com forward slash survey. And you can take the free entrepreneurial survey and see how you're doing in each category and see where you have room for improvement because, hey, we can always be improving. So welcome to the show. Let's get on to it. Nick DeCastro, welcome to the Black Diamond Podcast, my friend. Yeah, thanks for having me, Eric. Yeah, it's exciting. I've been wanting to talk about land trust. I've been talking to about to my friends and colleagues about it for uh, really since our initial conversation a few months ago. So it's great to have the ability to dig into it a little bit more. And I'm really excited to tie in what you're currently doing, what the platform is all about and the the purpose that you have behind it into also the grand vision that you have, you know years sure. down the road for where this could go. And the best place to start always, Nick, is just you. Give us your backstory, man. How did you get to be the founder of LandTrust.com? Yeah, sure. It's been, uh, it's definitely taken a winding path to get here. So I was born in Southern California. Don't tell our Montana friends. Um, <laughs> and I was born in Laguna Beach and grew up right outside of it. You know, I was always at the beach spearfishing or surfing just in and around the water hunting out there in the deserts. And then I went to school in Boston and then moved to New York after and kind of started in the digital advertising world for my career and spent about a decade doing marketing and advertising technology and lived in New York and Chicago, Boston, LA, San Francisco, Boulder, and then found my way up here to Bozeman. So, you know, ad tech and marketing tech was a, was a really interesting industry. I think I was lucky to be in it at a a time of explosive growth there. I think when I first got in in 2010, I don't even know if Facebook had advertising yet. If it did, it was very, very new. So getting to see the proliferation of, of that and really understanding how to uh, digitally acquire and retain users, uh, super important skill sets, I think, for founders today, especially startup founders. But you know, it wasn't the most fulfilling of jobs. Was able to pay the bills, and you know I'm grateful for that. But working on land trust now is definitely a bit more fulfilling from that perspective. Where did you go to school in Boston? I went to BU. Oh, you did? Did we know yeah. that I went to Boston College? Oh no way! Yeah, so yeah. you went to a school that's called Boston College. It's not in Boston. I went to Boston University, which is in yeah. Boston. Yeah, uh, that was one of the most annoying things. You tell people, "Oh, I go to BU." They're like, "Oh, you go to Boston College." No, go to Boston University. <laughs> kind of fun fact, Boston College is one of five, I guess, universities or post or 
post grad or what's the word I'm looking for? It's it's one of only five universities that don't have the word university in the name. Oh, interesting. So people, yeah. people can go search that out. Little fun nice. fact for today. So land trust, what what was the impetus, man? When 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 did the light bulb go off? Yeah, it's a good question. So when I was doing my a ton of travel. So I, I did about a million miles. I was in sales uh, for my entire career. So living on planes and in, in uh, airports and doing all that. So I didn't get a lot of hunting and fishing done during my twenties, I would say, which, you know, I love, I love to hunt and fish. And when I went out to Boulder to work for my now, uh, one of my board members and his company, that was kind of reintroducing me back into the outdoors, Boulder, uh, you know, boulders right there at the the foothills of the mountains and started to fish and, you know, hunt more. Uh, and it was really kind of like, Hey, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm good with cities. I think I'll kind of want to get back out and do this, this type of stuff. So then I moved up to Bozeman after Boulder and, you know, land trust started as a way to scratch my own itch. And for those of you who haven't heard of land trust or seen it, I started it with the intention of being sort of like Airbnb or VRBO, but for hunting and fishing on private lands. You know, we're, we're blessed out here in the Rocky Mountain West with a ton of public land that, you know, any and all of us can go out and hunt and fish and recreate on, which is amazing. But inevitably, uh, any hunters that are listening to this, there's always, you know, awesome looking private property where it turns out a lot of animals like to hang out. And so that was sort of the impetus for it. I had been a really early Airbnb host in New York City back when I was living there in 2011, I think I joined as a host. So I had already seen the power of the sharing economy. And so that that kind of model was ingrained in me. And so when I saw this problem of it's really a marketplace problem of, you know, how do we connect supply and demand here and remove the friction and opacity from it? So that was the impetus for me starting land trust was really to scratch my own itch. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to me seeing the, you know, we'll just call it the Airbnb model because they they really deserve that. But it being applied to so many different things, you know, yeah. I see Airbnb model applied to swimming pools, yes. right? Yes, in, in California and, yes. and places that have swimming pools. And where else have you just out of curiosity? Where have you seen this type of model applied to that's been pretty creative and maybe surprised you a little? Well, yeah, I mean, the swimming pool one is definitely. You're getting out to the really niche use cases. <laughs> yeah. um, and in the sharing economy, you know, I believe there's a lot of power in it, but there are people who, you know, are, are detractors from it and sometimes for good reasons. You know, I have really focused and studied sort of Airbnb and VRBO and, and more in that kind of like home sharing just from, you know, what I've looked at for as I build this company. So I know that there's all sorts of interesting use cases that people have applied it to, but that's really, I, I think I've seen one for saunas in Europe. So <laughs> I, I enjoy saunas. I don't know that that would proliferate here though in the US. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a little, yeah, I just can't see. <laughs> Especially coronavirus now thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's uh, that gets a little odd. You know, I, I'd be curious. I'm, I'm 44. I feel like I can easily kind of bridge the gap between generations. I can understand a lot of it, but I think for, there's definitely a, a value system that's, that's more apt to the younger generations of mm. ownership of a thing isn't as important as access to a thing. Do you, yeah. 
do you see that or do you agree with that or what, what's your take on that, that generational value system? Yeah, generally speaking, I, I do agree with that. And I think that that's what has led to the explosion of a lot of these sharing economy things and also experience driven things. So I would say younger generations are definitely putting more value on experiences rather than, you know, purchasing things. Not that we don't still have a you know very consumer driven economy. And really, if you look at what Land Trust today provides, we provide people the opportunity to go out and have experiences with their friends and family in nature, you know, going on hunting trips with your, with your buddies um, or your family. That's truly the thing that land trust is, is helping facilitate. And, and it is really all about the experience. I mean, we were just talking before we hopped on this uh, podcast about a handful of the unsuccessful, I'm saying that in quotes, hunting trips that we've both had this season so far, but I won't speak for you they were awesome experiences regardless. Yes. Yeah. We were not successful from a harvest perspective and I still, I still want to do that, but I was able to go out, spend time in nature, get away from technology, be with friends. And uh, that's really what it's all about. Yeah, it really is. So let's, let's talk about land trust a little bit. So give, give me, how does it work? Right. I mean, everyone, most people are familiar with Airbnb, Um, But from, uh, you know, someone who's booking to someone who's, you know, leasing out their land or if leasing is even the right term. Yeah. Give us the the lowdown. Yeah, I guess technically just, just, just like Airbnb where it technically is a short-term lease. They don't use the word lease, but I mean, from a technical perspective, that's what's happening. Yeah. You, you basically say, Hey, I've got, if you're a landowner and you've got 20 plus acres or, or whatnot, that's got good wildlife and habitat or if it's adjacent to public land that has access, you know, has pretty unique access to public land, or you're on a a, a river bottom, a creek, a stream, whatever for fishing, we are a place where you can come and list your land and be able to host sportsmen, hunters and fishermen right now for a price of your choosing. And you get to set all your own rules, uh, you know, how, how sportsmen can, can use the property, what activities they're allowed to do, you know, if you're in a smaller piece of land and you just, you know, you want to have just archery only, that's it's totally up to you. It's your private land. You get to you get to make your rules and all that. So we make it very simple. If anyone's hosted on Airbnb or VRBO before, it's basically exactly the same. Uh, although our product is still obviously not as polished as those companies with, that are worth fifty billion dollars, but the the concept is the same. And then for sportsmen, you know, we've got. Close to a half million acres of private lands across 36, 37 states or so who have listed with us. So you can think about it a little bit. I mean, it's kind of like we're enabling digital door knocking. And for those who are not hunters, door knocking is sort of, uh, well, it's literally what hunters will do. So before land trust, you'd see a private piece of land and you might want to go hunt on it. And you literally go knock on that person's door and, you know, pitch them on potentially hunting there and get a yay or nay from them. So what land trust is doing is enabling you to do that from, you know, the comfort of your home or smartphone or wherever in States far away or close to home. And with landowners who are all receptive because door knocking in person has a very low hit rate. So all these landowners, they, you know, they've listed be specifically because they're, they're willing and, and able to host hunters and, and fishermen on their land. So we just make it really easy. So as a sportsman, you can go to landtrust.com, 
you know, search by state or species. Uh, say you want to go do a turkey hunt in Montana. Uh, you can go and check out a bunch of listings with photos and descriptions and reviews by other hunters. You can, you know, uh, make inquiries at the landowner and, and, and kind of discuss what you're looking for with the landowners. And if everything looks good, you, you book it with a credit card, just like you would an Airbnb or a hotel. And, you know, that's, that's kind of it. We, we send you all the maps and this is where the product is growing a lot too, but we try to get you fully prepared and all the information you need to have a really successful trip. Yeah, that's huge, right? If you can do all the, the due diligence up front for, for mm-hmm. the, uh, the sportsman, that's, that's really important. Does the, does the landowner have to have some sort of lodging on the land? Is that a requirement? That's a great question. No, they don't. So we have quite a few landowners that don't. And we do have landowners that do. You know, that's a, it's a really cool thing about sportsmen, hunters specifically. So if some of our landowners have ever hosted on Airbnb, they're a little bit tougher critics on lodging because that's kind of the point of going to an Airbnb. With the land trust and our sportsmen, the point is not the lodging. The point is the access to land to hunt. So sportsmen are uh, much more forgiving from a lodging perspective. So, I mean, I booked the very first hunt ever last year through land trust and we slept in a hundred year old cow camp in Colorado with field mice, but it had a wood burning stove and cots. And, you know, that was great roof over our heads. You know, we're pretty uh, self-sustaining people that probably wouldn't have been worked very well for Airbnb. So if there is lodging or you're, you know, happy to let people park a, a an RV or pull behind trailer or, pitch a tent or whatever, or if you've got a bunkhouse or, you know, guest house or whatever, that's all awesome because, you know, a lot of these sportsmen are booking what we call hunting vacations, which is them getting a a few of their friends or family together, traveling to a new place and, you know, staying for three, five, six days to just, you know, go out and hunt and spend time together. And so if they can stay on the property, that's definitely uh, something that's valuable. Awesome. You know, I, I want to touch on something because I would imagine that a certain percentage of people who are listening to this, mm. and I'm not asking you to be a Steve Ranilla, right? But <laughs> sure. You know, I think, I think, you know, what's interesting is we're in the office right next to them. So we share a really? wall with those guys. Yeah. Oh man. I, I watch a lot of his shows, hunting, fishing, and the relationship to conservation. You know, I, I think a lot of people have a concept that you know, all hunters are trophy hunters who kill just for Mm. the joy of killing Mm -hmm. with, you know, little concern for, for the environment and what happens. And that's, that is so far from the actual truth. Yeah. There are people who are irresponsible, bad people, right? And every, in every group or population or tribe, there are always bad actors. Yeah. And, and there's only, you know, I think I read a stat, so about 5% of the U S population hunts. So it's, it's, you know, it's not insignificant, but it's not a huge number either. So when people hear like, you know, about hunting, what, what, what's the Mm -hmm. messaging that you want to get across to people about that community? Yeah, it's a great uh, question. And yeah, that that point couldn't be further from the truth. You actually mentioned Steve Ranella. He did a great documentary called Stars in the Sky, which I think is on Netflix right now. So, I mean, he dives into that and presents hunting through the modern lens with advocates for and, you know, opponents of hunting. And he, I think as with any well done piece, you present all sides. So I would recommend anyone listening who has maybe 
doesn't have a point of view yet, or maybe thinks, oh, I don't know, hunters, why do they do that? And, you know, how could that be conservation? That's a, that's a good place to start. The, the, the facts are that hunters actually drive the lion's share of conservation dollars every year for habitat and wildlife. And it is kind of an interesting dichotomy. You know, you love, you love these animals and, you know, sportsmen are so fanatical. I was just one of our employees here. She's not a hunter, doesn't come from any of that background. I was just driving her out to do a shoot a land on her testimonial video this morning. And I'm just picking deer off on the drive out there. Just, it's just natural I'm looking for deer. And she's like, how do you see these things? Well, cause we're, you know, we love, we love these animals. We do kill them. So it is a, it is a weird dichotomy and I, it's hard to explain, but yeah. So, I mean, I think hunters, I believe the number is somewhere around a billion a year um, that hunters put into conservation directly, both through voluntary donation, but also through the mechanisms that are in place from, you know, buying tags and licenses, purchasing firearms, ammunition, and other sporting goods that are related to hunting and fishing activities. So we are by far and away the largest drivers of wildlife and habitat conservation. So, you know, it's important to, to remember that. And then the other piece here too, specifically to landowners, for those who don't know, the lower 48 is 70, 70 to 75% private lands. And so if you're, if you consider, if you're concerned about conservation, you know, 75% of something is a good place to start. Obviously we love, you know, we love public lands and there are plenty of groups out there who are dedicated to, you know, advocating on behalf of public lands, which, which is great. But we see at land trust, this kind of leads into our larger vision. We see the real opportunity in building a, you know, for-profit private lands conservation company. And conservation has historically, when that word is said, it's relegated to nonprofits and government, which it's great that they're doing the things that they do. But we believe that there's an opportunity for the third leg of the stool, which is for profit. So that's really where land trust is going. To, is going. You know, we started with, hey, let's just build Airbnb for hunting and fishing on private lands, which is great. That's what we do today. If you go to our website, you're like, okay, yeah, this looks kind of like that. And that's, you know, that's what we're delivering on today. But, you know, after getting in this space and learning and talking to all these different constituents, the thing that's kind of been revealed over time is... You know, private rural lands are simultaneously critical to wildlife and habitat conservation while also being increasingly difficult to make financially viable. And it's those financial pressures that these critical landscapes face that make them really vulnerable to being sold and developed, which erases habitat forever. You know, I don't know if, if anyone has ever seen a subdivision get undeveloped, but didn't turn out the way they want. Once habitat is developed, it's never going back. And so... I think it's really important that you know, in the hunting community and for those who aren't in the hunting community, this might, they probably don't know about this, but there's kind of this certain sector or certain segments that are, you know, we're pure public land and public land is the only way to hunt. And there could be even a, some, in some cases, an antagonistic perspective of private land, which I think is really unhealthy and it's a false choice. I give an example to folks. So Ted Turner owns a big ranch here close to town out in Gallatin Gateway. My buddy actually has a property that backs up to it. So <clears throat> I may never step foot on Ted's ranch. You know, he does, he does allow people to come hunt on his land. It's a lot of money. It's probably anywhere from 10 to $20,000 to go out and hunt a bull elk. 
it's a little rich for me right now, but I'm really glad it's there because he, he put it in a conservation easement. He actively manages the habitat and wildlife and it's an incredibly beautiful place. And I'm, even though I'll never be a consumer, a quote, a quote unquote consumer on his land, the benefits of all the work he does flows over into public lands. You know, that habitat and wildlife work that he does doesn't stop at a fence. You know, habitat and wildlife don't work like that. So it's this kind of concept of private land conservation for the public benefit. And guess what? I'm, I'm really glad that when I look over there, that it's not the next subdivision of Big Sky or the next condo or hotel of Big Sky, because that's what it would be. It's right there next to the Big Sky. You know, it's on the other side of the mountain from the Big Sky ski resorts. So because if that happens, that habitat is, again, gone forever. You never see something get undeveloped. So I think we need to have that perspective and we need to appreciate all the work that private landowners now, obviously Ted's a, a wealthy guy and has a lot of resources, but this type of stewardship mindset is prevalent. I would say by and large across private landowners, farmers, ranchers, working lands who have been stewarding these lands for generations in many cases, whether it's 40 acres or you know, 400,000 acres. So at land trust, we're really focused on, making private rural lands financially sustainable for the purpose of conserving habitat, wildlife, accessibility, and our connection to those landscapes. And that connection piece is where we're kind of starting right now with getting, you know, getting us out on these lands, whether it be to hunt or fish, we'll get into other activities as we continue to grow, but nature-based outdoor recreation. And, and I think that's what, that's, what's really important to us. And we'll be, soon connecting these private landowners with all sorts of different conservation related dollars that you know can help help with the bottom line of you know having you know a piece of rural rural land uh i mean there's so much in there that i love about what you're talking about and it really is to me interesting you know a lot of private landowners the ones that i've talked to i mean and stewardship is 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 a great term and mm -hmm word that needs to be get out there more because I mean, a lot of the people I know who have moved here actually from, you know, you, you joked at the beginning how, you know, people from California who moved to Montana, generally, you don't like to say that you're from California. No, right? no. Although people could probably sniff it out pretty fast, but I do, you know, there's, there's distinct people that I know who have invested in land here and are very much about the stewardship. Because if you are like, for me, I am from California. I grew up in the, in the San Francisco Bay area in the Silicon Valley before it was the Silicon Valley. And I can tell you, yeah. if there's anybody more traumatized by development, yeah. it's, it, I, I am. I mean, I was riding my bike around in orchards in my youngest memory all around, you know, the Silicon, like in, in the, oh, it was the garden, area. it was the garden of Eden. I mean, it was yeah, beautiful. California was just an incredible and the Bay area is one of the most beautiful places in the world. And now it's been developed to an untenable level. It's, it's crazy. So, and, and you know, my, when I sit around in the middle of my day and I have like 30 minutes of just kind of brainless, you know, time to kill, I just look for, you know, 
hundred acres, 200 acres here and sure. there. <laughs> and I dream about it. Yep. I'm like, all right, well, how much do you to get that? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I think that's a really cool thing is that, you know, you can develop this, this idea. Now, that being said, I, I was, you know, anecdotally having some lunch with some friends who, not friends, just acquaintances who happen to be from California and they're thinking about mm. moving to Montana and they're both developers and they were talking about how they're going to, they can buy this land and what it costs to, to subdevelop, you know, subdivide oh, it. I'm like, I'm like, Oh God, oh, please don't do that. I stop. I'm yeah. like, guys, don't do that. In fact, don't talk like that around me. Yeah. Don't, <laughs> I live, I live here, man. Like I want to still come back to this bar. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's the kind of stuff that I think that's the difference is, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, come in these areas who want those values and it's, it's really important. I think, I think private stewardship is, you know, it sounds counter intuitive, but it really is the way to go. Uh, because people who love it, you know, like Ted Turner, people will say whatever you want about a rich guy, you know, whatever his ideology ideologies are, but that's a great thing, man. I think it's Tim yeah. Southwell, who I think, I don't know if you talked to him from, I did. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've gotten to speak with Tim a couple of times. He's a great guy. Yeah. Very similar values. Right. And it's, it's, it's a really interesting thing. You know, I, I have this stat that stuck in my head from back when I took my hunter's egg course was that less then when you talk about the endangerment of species and animals, far less than 1% actually comes from hunting. The rest of oh, it is, oh, yeah. it's, is pushing, it's habitat loss. Mm-hmm. And that's, so that's the enemy and it's not the hunting community. They're actually the no. biggest advocate for it. So that's something that I really want people to understand is like, no, you're, you're, it, it's sure. It seems obvious though. Those people kill animals. So they're the, they're the enemy. No, it's so far from the truth got to understand that. I want that point to be very clear. And you're right that you know, Steve Renilla under the, under the stars documentary, which is on Netflix is something that I highly encourage people to, to watch. Yeah. Um, in the modern, yeah. In the modern era, the, in the modern era in the United States, it's uh, hunting something to extinction is not something that could possibly happen. You know, market hunting in the 19th century and stuff. Yeah. Okay. That there was definitely, it was pushed, pushed to the brink, but it was sportsmen who were saying, Hey, we should, we should regulate ourselves. We need to bring these things back. It was, you know, organizations like the National Wild Turkey Foundation and all these other species-related, started by hunters, species-related nonprofits that really resurrected these species um, in most cases. So, yeah, that's that's just that's 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 not what happens. It's when, uh, yeah, you sell off a piece and they put a strip mall in, or they put a sub they put a subdivision in. That's what that's what puts species in danger. And so if we can, in a, in a lot of cases, we, we speak to a lot of landowners all over the country and people are passionate about their lands. And especially when you look in agricultural and ranching and stuff like that, but even just, you know, folks who own rural land, maybe it isn't a working land. It's not that they're like, man, how do I get rid of this thing? People like having rural land. It's just the fact that most of the time it comes down to, ah, this, I can't make this thing work out financially. And the selling comes not joyfully, but with like, this is our kind of the last, this is what we have to do. We're, we're backed into this corner. And if we can contribute in any way, shape or form at land trust to alleviating that financial burden, and I'm not under any uh, naive misconception that conservation alone will make properties sustainably financially, but in conjunction you, know, you really need to look at it like a portfolio. So ranching and farming, that we call those legacy businesses. We love them. I think beyond just their value to the company or to the country from a commodities perspective, 
culturally, I mean, these are things that I think we all want to see continue, lifestyles and the ways of life that these people have. In today's politically charged environment, farmers have like a 90 plus percent approval rating across parties. Like what other group or subject or, or policy would have that kind of bipartisan support? So, you know, it's part of the fabric of the country. So if we can turn conservation into a crop and make it, you know, make some money and contribute to an operation or to that bottom line of that land where they don't have to stare down the barrel of, well, we either go bankrupt or we sell because that's a, that's a, that's a bad choice. Yeah. And that's, that's a really key thing. I think people are really starting to recognize now that these great causes, right. You got to make them profitable. Yep. That's it. That's it. Right. It really comes down to that. And so that's what I really love. You know, I love being able to work on what I work on every day. If you think about the market, the incentives that the market economy brings in this model, it's really interesting. So if you were to, you know, have a place and start, you know, renting it out on Airbnb and you start making some money, say, oh man, I'm making, you know, I'm making some income. You start thinking about the potential that you could have. And you might, you know, buy a big screen TV and get faster internet and put a jacuzzi in the backyard because you know that you'll be able to make more money from that asset that you have. Well, if you look at that through the lens of land trust, uh, we have landowners that sign, you know, that sign up with us and make a few thousand dollars off some bookings right pretty, pretty fast and just letting people come out and enjoy their property. They start thinking, well, how do I improve? This is an asset that I didn't really look at from this perspective before. And you know, improving that asset is habitat work. You know, maybe it's adding new water sources. Maybe it's leaving three or four rows of corn if you're a farmer on the edges just for more, you know, for more habitat. Maybe it's adding mass bearing trees or pollinators. So that's, that's the, you know, asset improvement. And we think that that incentive, hey, you'll, you're, you're going to have better habitat, which will have better fish and wildlife populations. And that, that kind of virtuous circle is there. So we think that that's, that incentive is the best way to approach conservation. And I mean, Aldo Leopold, the godfather of modern conservation, I'm going to paraphrase here, but he said conservation is basically going to boil down to rewarding the private landowner um, for conserving the public good. That's not a direct quote, so don't attack me, folks, but it's, it's paraphrased. <clears throat> so... Yeah, really, we want we want to highlight the work that's already being done by the private landowners of the U.S., where a huge amount of habitat and wildlife are conserved, and then enable them to continue that and make it you know have that financial incentive there. Yeah, it's great, man. So I, I want to dive into like how you're doing. Like when I when I think about land trust and you know similar models to it there's a chicken and egg problem mm. right like okay what do you need first do you need the landowners or do you need the people? two-sided marketplace problems yep. <laughs> yeah so what do you what, what was your to get this thing off the ground what what was your approach yeah it's a good question yeah getting two-sided marketplaces off the ground are very difficult yeah it's a chicken and the egg or you know, certain circles they call it the cold start problem we're we're what's known as a supply side marketplace, which means the supply side is the harder side to get. So every two-sided marketplace has one side that's harder. And we are built around private landowners. So that is that is the core. Without private landowners, we have we are nothing. 
So that's the harder side. That's where I spent my time originally. Being a sportsman and knowing a bunch of sportsmen, I wasn't too concerned about whether there would be some demand there from that side. So, and it really started with me going through, finding landowners, cold calling, doing door knocking, all this kind of stuff, just to get our first handful of properties listed. Uh, Ironically, maybe ironically isn't the right word, but we really kind of launched the company last October. So it's been a little over a year. And with the majority of our listings in New Jersey, of all places, Uh, we're based here in Bozeman. But yeah, New Jersey, we got like 13 listings from one farmer. He's a great guy. And we were able to really kind of launch the business there. We had a handful of listings in some other places too. But yeah, I mean, getting that, getting kind of that critical mass and getting to the place where, you know, speaking about the business and the value proposition, that's kind of an always evolving thing. And I come from sales, a sales background. So, you know, pitching is sort of natural to me at this point, but it should always be, your pitch should always be evolving and you should be taking feedback and looking at how your customers react to, to that. So that's gotten much better. And then there's a certain amount of social proof. So when landowners come to land trust now and they see a bunch of really beautiful properties and places that might be nearby them in their state that look like their place, it's just a, you know, it's, there's a certain point where like, Hey, this, you know, seems legit where you don't really have that luxury as a startup founder when you first start because no one knows who you are. No one knows your name. No one knows what this thing you're trying to do. And they don't really see many other people doing it. So we've gotten past that piece. Uh, we still have plenty to go. I say usually we're like in minute two of the marathon. So there's still a long, long, long way to go. But we've kind of gotten past that chicken and egg problem. We're uh, Congratulations. I know that's huge. What, when did you guys start? When did Land Trust officially launch? When did you start yes. and when did you launch? That's a good question. I've been kicking around the idea since 2017 and then decided in 2018 to just like, I got to do this thing and, you know, sort of build my first kind of investor pitch deck then. And I went full time July 1st of 2019. And is that correct? 2018. 2018, I think. So two, two, two Julys ago, not this last one, the one before. I think that's 2018. And then we launched October 2nd of this last year. So we've been, we've been live and in the public's hands for just over a year. How has how the pandemic affected your business? Have you noticed an uptick, downtick, any changes yeah, at all? It's a good question. When the, we were having a phenomenal first quarter growing very fast. And then the shutdowns and lockdowns happened. So April sucked, frankly. You know, it's interesting too, and I was telling our investors about this, that it's not that our sportsmen or really our landowners were worried about the virus itself. It was more of an economic thing. So we had a huge month lining up for April and then it kind of just fell apart. And we started hearing from these guys who were, you know, booking five, you know, booking, booking like big trips for the coming season. And they dropped out. It was, uh, Hey, you know, three of the guys in the group got furloughed. So like, we still want to go, but we just need to wait and see how this turns out. 
So that was, you know, hey, look, the whole country kind of took a kick in the pants then. But, you know, May and June, it kind of it came back. You know, sportsmen, I think from a psychographic perspective, we're pretty, we believe we're pretty self-sufficient people. So the other thing too, that we didn't face that a lot of other companies, especially companies like Airbnb faced, is Airbnb at least, well, now it's a little bit different post, post-pandemic, but beforehand, Airbnb's kind of core value prop was to travel to a new place on a plane and stay at a, you know, and a lot of those places were cities and stay in somebody's place, generally speaking. So pandemics, planes, and cities don't mix super well. They have pivoted heavily into rural stays nearer to home, and that's done very well for them. Our our trips, our, our sportsmen, even if they're from Missouri and they're booking something in Montana, they'll drive. It's It would be more rare for a trip being booked, regardless of it's cross-country or not, to have that sportsman fly. So... From that perspective, we weren't impacted in nearly the way that some of these big travel marketplaces were. Hmm. And yeah, you know, our, from a supply side, our landowners are social distancing is a way of life. Yeah, farming, farming, ranching, <laughs> living in rural communities. It was. I mean, we were talking to these folks as this stuff was just setting in. And they're like, "Yeah, it's not just like nothing about my life has changed." So it, we're, we're we were pretty uniquely positioned to to deal with that. I think. And it's so interesting to see what this pandemic has done to the disbursement of people, you know, leaving urban areas. <clears throat> I mean, I don't know about Bozeman, but in the Flathead Valley, the, the real oh, estate yeah. market is absolutely nuts. It's chaos. My neighbor's um, house sold in two hours, cash, no contingencies, uh, no inspections. Mm. That's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I saw uh, sight uh, unseen, uh, by the way, sight unseen. Yeah, sight unseen. A lot of that. Yep. I, we saw a house yep. that it was, you know, a three, like a three one. And, mm-hmm. you know, a year ago it would have been on the market. I think it was on the market yep. for 350. And now it's on the market for 750. Good and, uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, there's a good chance it's the only one on the market right now and they'll probably sell. And, That's you know, exciting. it's just, it's, it's, but it's what it's doing culturally is going to be interesting because this am- amalgamation of, of, this sudden influence from urban areas into these rural yes. areas. Yes. You know, I, it's going to be an interesting experiment. I'm not even going well, to. Well, yeah, you've been hearing what's going to happen. Texas has been experiencing this for a while. Don't California, my Texas. And I would encourage people to, and I'm sure I'll, I'll receive criticism for this, but yeah, if you move to these places that you really like, you like them for reasons. They were this way before you got here. And, you know, progress is always progress. And I'm sure I could receive a ton of criticism for even land trust. But yeah, I think it's, I would encourage folks to kind of like, hey, maybe sit back a minute and see how people do things before yeah. hopping in and, and uh, trying to steer the ship. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really good message. And, you know, just kind of sit back and be quiet. Yeah, you know, (laughs) go drink, go go to the bar, go to one of our amazing breweries. I don't want to sell Montana any more than we do, but Montana has incredible breweries and maybe just like sit and listen to people for a while. Yeah. Well, I have two predictions. I think two years from now, two winters from now, we're going to see a lot of homes go for sale. And I think we're going to agree with you. I think we're going to see a lot of Sprinter vans for sale as well. So if you're in the market for those two things, wait, uh, it's a, it's a great, it's a great point. Yeah. I mean, I moved up here from Boulder and, you know, Denver has just exploded 
and they're like, well, you know, Bozeman's going to be the next boulder. And I said, yeah, I don't think so. And people say, why, why don't you think that? I'm like, well, cause we have real winter here. It's already been, it's only, it's not even, it's just past the middle of November. We've already had a few days that were five or six below. So Boulder doesn't have real winter. Boulder, it's like in the 30s, it's chilly and, you know, it'll snow and the snow will sit on the street for a day and then it's gone. Montana has got real winter and real it winter. definitely weeds people out. I've found myself in uh, very scary situations due to my ignorance. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'd be like driving yeah. I'm like, huh, there's no other cars on this road. I wonder nope. why. Yep. You and, need to have uh, the right vehicle. You need to always have the right things in your vehicle in the wintertime okay. or anytime you need to have, you know, water and warm clothes and boots and, you know, probably a hatchet or an ax way to make fire. There's, you can't just uh, go driving around uh, at nighttime in the winter. It's not a good idea. Yeah. But you know what I, I do hear is that Idaho is a wonderful place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've heard Boise. You know, if you you're thinking about making Boise. a move. Yeah. I think Boise is, is Boise pretty is awesome. Pretty cool. McCall. I mean, up here, it's dark. It's gray. It's dark it's and cold. cold. Yeah. And most people are kind it. of assholes. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. And the beer sucks. <laughs> I take that back. Beer sucks. Yeah. Man. Well, hey, Nick, where, where do people get a, get a hold of you if they want? Obviously, landtrust.com, but if they want to get a hold of you, ask a question. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't have any social media and I haven't in years. So I got rid of my Facebook and Instagram probably in 2015. Amazing. Uh, I used to work in that industry. So I saw how the sausage was made. Everyone's now you know, seeing that new social dilemma thing. And my wife rolls her eyes when we watched it because she's like, this is what you've been preaching at me for years. So no social media, but if you want to get a hold of, of me or have questions, you can shoot me an email, Nick. It's just N-I-C. There's no K on that at landtrust.com. We've got a number on our site too, that kind of is our catch all number. And if you shoot us, a t shoot that number a text or give it a call, someone on the team will be able to get, you know, pick it up and route you the right way. But yeah, I would encourage, you know, if you're a landowner who's got, you know, 20 plus acres or you're adjacent to public land or you're, you know, on a stream or something like that. And you've got wildlife and good habitat. There are a, a lot of sportsmen around this country who are eager and willing to, you know, pay for the opportunity to come out and enjoy your place. So recommend you get in contact with us. Super easy to list. Our team will help you out. And for sportsmen, great way to, be able to go out and have a private hunting, private land hunting experience close to home or in another state, you know, we have a bunch of both and, and really just to have some new experiences with, with friends and family and maybe not have as much pressure to, to wake up as early and then get cut off at the trailhead and have your whole day changed. You can sleep in a little bit later at private land hunting because you're, you know, you got the place to yourself, which is really nice. And, yeah, you know, the other part, too, is, is meeting these landowners. I mean, they're just such cool people. And that really goes back to the beginning of, like, I want Land Trust, as we continue to grow, to reconnect us as a public to these rural lands and lifestyles, the people who live there and work those lands. They're great people. And we've already seen so many good relationships from sportsmen, both local and, and from, you know, other places who meet these landowners and, you know, just have great experiences. Awesome. Well, Nick, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure and love what you're doing, man. Fully support it. So keep up the great work. Yeah. I appreciate that. Eric. Thank you for having me on. Ladies and gentlemen, Nick DeCastro. Hey everybody. This is your host, Eric Malzone. Don't leave yet. I have a few more requests for you. 
So if you got value out of this podcast, I ask you to do a few things. Number one, go to wherever you're listening, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and go ahead and subscribe to the show. Number two, while you're there, if you feel that we earned it, please leave us a nice review. Number three, share it. Whether it be social media, email, texting, whatever it may be, I'm sure you know somebody who would get value out of this episode just like you did. So please go ahead and share it. And that's how we get the word out. So it's really valuable and super appreciative. It only takes a minute of your time. Next, if you know of somebody, including yourself, who would be a great guest for the show, please head on over to level5mentors.com, L-E-V-E-L, the number five, mentors.com. Get in touch with me, let me know what you're thinking, uh, make an introduction, whatever it may be. You can also get me directly in my email, which is eric, E-R-I-C, at level5mentors.com. Lastly, if you just wanna chat, you wanna find out more, if you wanna expand on some ideas, I love hearing from the audience. So go ahead and hit me up on social media. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. You also have my email already. So I love to hear from you. I'm always looking for ways to improve the show and I'm always looking to have great conversations. So don't hesitate to reach out. And once again, thank you for listening to the Black Diamond Podcast and you can expect a lot more from us.